Well, I pray that you can all say that confidently this morning, because if you can say that you have already decided to follow Jesus, this message is going to be a lot more hopeful. If you're a bit skeptical of who Jesus is, what he's done, and why we say we believe in him, well, I'm very glad you're here this morning, uh, because I want us to look at some of what that means to believe in and follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Um, often when you're posed with having to have a hard conversation, you look at someone, uh, and your spouses will often do this with you, or maybe it's just Melissa and I, but you'll say, do you want the good news or the bad news? And depending on whether you're a glass half empty or glass full person, you will either choose the good news first and then save the bad news for later, uh, or you will take the bad news first so that you can end on a high note with the good news. Well, I would rather get the bad news out of the way first, because in Christ, the entire end is a high note. All eternity is a high note. But there is reality that we have to wrestle with. And I was thinking to myself, in, in the years I've been a part of a church, any church, uh, so I'm 38 years old, so 38 years from the minute I came out of the womb, I was in church every time the doors were open unless I was in the hospital. Because if you were healthy enough to be up and standing, you were healthy enough to go to church. That was the rule in my household. And so in all those years... There's a subject that I've noticed that we don't often want to talk about beyond the very surface in the life of the church. But yet, as we walk through the end of Revelation, we absolutely have to examine what God's Word says about it, not what our assumptions are. And so for the next few moments, we're going to look at the concept of hell, that hell is real, that it is a place And that, yes, God indeed condemns people to hell. With that, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and 21. And then we're going to move into chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Uh, And if this is your first Sunday with us, you picked a doozy of a Sunday. But bear with us because this is important information. So I'd like to start by reading from God's word a little bit of what Revelation says, and then we're going to progress from there. Now, last week, we we talked about Jesus, our warrior Messiah, and that Jesus, our warrior Messiah, conquered sin and death once for all, and that Jesus, our warrior Messiah, is the one that reigns victorious over Satan and will for all eternity. We love that message, right? Yeah, uh, that was almost convincing. Anyway, you think about it for a while, you come back to it. But the thing is, if you go to the Chinese idea, and and I'm not espousing this, but if you go to the Chinese idea of harmony, of yin and yang, well, if Jesus is our warrior king and our warrior God and our warrior Messiah, he must be defeating something, correct? And in that defeat is where we find ourselves this week. What and who is he defeating? Well, he's not defeating himself. He is defeating the work of sin, the person of Satan, and the presence of evil in this world. Revelation 19 says this, But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
Let me read that again. The fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is powerful imagery that God is giving us through the prophet John, through the apostle John. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Ooh, yeah, I'm so glad we get to talk about this. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And we'll come back to that in the weeks to come. We're not going to be able to cover all this today. Anyone whose name was not found written into the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Mike, I came to church to be encouraged and uplifted. And I promise if you bear with me, you will. But one of the scariest things for a preacher is the fact that we can read some of God's word and not address all of God's word. And we have to be willing to accept the reality of hell, the destruction of sin, and the victory of God. It's not one or the other. I'll never forget the one most prominent sermon I can ever remember anyone preaching on hell was the first time and the only time I ever heard my dad say one thing. And my dad is a preacher, so bear with me. He got up in front of everybody and he was checking to see who was awake. And he said, this morning, I want to scare the hell out of you. And I popped up because, you know, I was 12, so I wasn't listening to him, but I heard that. This morning, I do not want to scare the hell out of you. I want, you to point, I want to point you to the scriptures that should do that for me. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pray and we're going to open up and we're going to see how Jesus talked about hell. And we're going to open up and see what the scriptures tell us about the reality of what damnation means for those that are separated from the love of Christ for all eternity, that it is real. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you very much that your word is sufficient for the day because mine are not. Uh, this is, as I prayed earlier, this has been one of the most difficult messages I've ever tried to prepare. But they're your words. And, and the fear I have is nothing compared to the greatness of who you are. And so God, open our hearts to your word. May we approach this subject with wisdom, with submission to you, and with great reverence for the fact that you are our God and our King and that we trust you, and that we live with a sense of urgency that none may be lost, and that to the four corners of the earth we are proclaiming your great name.
In your name I pray. Amen. We humans are, are an easily captivated people by what we perceive to be beautiful, aren't we? You know, for all of time, art has taken all sorts of forms. And as we come to the Lord's Supper later this morning, I always think of the picture of the Last Supper by da Vinci. Most of it is now lost, and another guy tried to reproduce it as best he could. It's not the same. But you get all these relational aspects of Jesus Christ and the the apostles, the 12 disciples, looking and wrestling with the very idea that Jesus had just told them, one of you will betray me. And so you see almost these groups of three wrestling in just one picture with that truth of, who is it? Is it me? Really? Does he mean what he's saying? And yes, he did. Sin was leading one to betray the very person of Jesus Christ. So we move ahead 2,000 years, and we've got a picture around that has captivated the world a couple years ago. Uh, a family wrote a book called Heaven is for Real. You remember that book? Some of you may have read it. And if you did, great. There are some wonderful things in it. And I'm not here to discuss the theological ramifications of Heaven is for Real, because God can certainly give us visions of eternity. And so I'll leave the rest for him for, uh, for us to wrestle with. And we were captivated by the beauty that this little boy was able to describe of what heaven would be like. And that excited many people. And it was a New York Times bestseller. So not only were Christians reading this book, but non-Christians were reading this book. Why? Because we love the thought of heaven. We love the idea of paradise forever and of being healed and of being whole and complete. And this excites us, right? Yeah, but good morning. Okay, you're not going to like where this is going if you're already asleep. But the thing is, if we say there is no heaven and there is no God, why would people be so captivated by a book like Heaven is for Real? One uh, man, I believe it was uh, Pascal, used to say that we're all created with a God-shaped hole that needs to be filled, and humanity will continually try to fill it with things that replace God, but nothing will. Uh, another book was recently written, again, New York Times bestseller, and, and we love it because it's, it presents such a wonderful, feel-good message, and the name of that book was Love Wins. And Love Wins presented the wonderful concept that in the end, everyone will make it to heaven. And we love that idea. It's called universalism. Uh, And what universalism generally espouses, again, and I'm going to move through a lot of ground and I'm going to do it as concisely as possible, but what universalism ultimately teaches is that this is hell right now. The suffering that you're going through, all of this, this is your hell. It's like a trash heap Gehenna that was outside the city of Jerusalem. That's the hell and the burning that that Jesus was referring to. Nothing beyond that. Jesus will come back and all will be restored and everything will be good and God certainly will redeem everyone. And we like that message. We love that love would win. But the problem is, even in basic logic, for love to win, something must lose. Is that not correct? We don't have winners if nobody's playing the game, is how C.S. Lewis refers to it. And I don't like the idea of my life being a game, but I like his metaphor. 
If love is to win, sin must lose. If love is to win, Satan must be defeated. If love is to win and God is love, then his words must, by default, have to be true. And if his words are true, then everything he said we must take and wrestle with completely. And if we are to take the words of God and the words of Jesus Christ, his son, who came to earth and lived among us and made his dwelling among us, fully God and fully man, we have to examine the fact that Jesus Christ, the one the Christian church would call our Lord and our Messiah, said more about hell than he did about heaven. By quite a large margin. Wrestle with that for a second. Jesus the Messiah talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And as we look at, if your Bible has red letters for every time Jesus spoke, who was Jesus usually talking to? Take a guess. Nobody's really willing to say it because we might be connected to them. He was talking to Pharisees and Sadducees and everybody else that was around. Pharisees and Sadducees are the really holy people that showed up at church. Uh Uh-oh. Now it just got real. Jesus spoke about hell to those people that thought they were already holy and had it all figured out. Jesus, time and again, presented a message of death and destruction, warning, drawing, attempting to draw people back and reminding them that you don't get it. You have missed the relational hope that is God our Father who is in heaven. And you've turned it into moralism, which leads you to hell. You cannot save yourself. Only I can save you. These were statements Jesus made time and again. In response to the book by Love Wins, Francis Chan and another guy wrote a follow-up called Erasing Hell. And in it, they make three points of what Jesus, in talking about hell, would have already understood to be true based on Jewish culture that then he fleshed out as he taught. And so we're going to use those three points and we're going to look at what hell is. Because often we we picture our hell from what pop culture teaches us today. For instance, there's a television show on, I have not watched it and I refuse to, called Lucifer. Did you know that's a show right now? And Satan, literally, they've embodied him as a person and he's walking around and manipulating people in all sorts of situations. And so we kind of look at him like this mischievous, evil kind of guy based on the commercials. Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong if you've watched the show, but... I'm not going to watch it, so you figure that out. But we are glorifying the image of the very embodiment of evil. And we're saying, well, he's just kind of messing with things. Jesus taught something a little different, and he played straight to the knowledge of what Jewish people had derived from the Old Testament and from tradition. And Jesus would then expound upon that. And as we explain these three definitions of hell, I then want us to wrestle with the first question that comes to mind anytime we talk about hell. And the first is, hell is a place of punishment after judgment. Okay. Most of us get that one. And and again, I'll flesh this out more as we go. This is kind of an academic pursuit to get us to where we need to be. The second thing we, we realize that Jesus talked over and over about is that hell is described, and you see this throughout God's word. Hell is described in imagery, you read it in Revelation 19 and 20, in imagery of fire and darkness where people lament. 
Now, that word lament, not a word we use all that often anymore, right? Do you know what lament is? It is a wailing and a crying out saying, woe is me. If you want to know exactly what a lament is, let me introduce you to a really cool book in your Bible. It's called Lamentations. That is what a lament is. There's uh, a few of them in there. And they're written about crying out against the injustice, the brokenness, the sinfulness, specifically of the people of Israel. And the hope that was needed. And so hell is described in an image, in imagery of fire and darkness where people are crying out because they're suffering. And then finally, hell is a place of annihilation or never-ending punishment. For centuries, people have wrestled with this last one because Greek can be confusing at times. And I'm not going to spend all the time it would take to look at the word study of this annihilation or never-ending punishment. But if you look in different versions of your Bible, it might say destroyed or it might say eternally punished. It can be confusing, and scholars that have a much bigger brain than me have wrestled with this very context of what the two Greek words that Jesus referred to. But here's what we know. Hell is real and destructive. What we don't know is exactly what was meant by that destruction. Because I don't believe our brains and our hearts can handle it. But that doesn't mean that it is any less real and it is any less permanent. So that's what I want you to keep in mind. Now, where do we describe, where do we get these three truths that we're going to look at and then respond to them? Well, let's start with number one. Maybe. First, hell is a place of punishment after judgment. Okay, Let's go Bible and church 101. If you grew up in a church, you might have been presented with a thing called the Romans Road. Has anybody ever heard of the Romans Road? It's basically teaching you the story of salvation using Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And Paul's letter to the church in Rome explains what Christianity is all about, who God is. It's a very big picture of God that people have been trying to replicate, but the closest thing they can do is write 500 pages in what Paul did in 16 chapters. And so it's this magnificent opus of what Paul knew to be true about who God is. And in that, we, re- we say two verses that come to mind. And first is, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, the wages of sin, the cost, the payment of sin, the retribution of sin, and keep that word retribution in mind, of sin is death. Okay, so sin has a cost. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Okay? That's found in Romans. The second one is tough. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you were in your Bible, if you're writing in a Bible or if you're using uh, any version of digital Bibles right now, underline, highlight, make it giant, the glory of God. Everything we need to talk about today has to be centered on the glory of God. Because if God is not glorious, if he is not holy, if he is not just, none of this matters. In a couple weeks, we will celebrate Easter together and we will look at... uh, 
Paul's letter to the church in Corinth where he talks about the resurrection of the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, none of this matters. If God isn't who he said he is, we can skip this and go listen to all the atheists out there and take them seriously. But I'm going to say that I don't think that's right. I'm going to say that his word seems to paint a different picture of how we are to live as Christ followers and the reality of hell for the world around us. And the fact is that people seem to be running from that. So if the wages of sin is death and all have sinned, that means there is punishment needed. You with me so far? I don't want to overcomplicate this, but we have sinned. Okay? If your child disobeys you and you are a loving parent, you will let them get away with it every time, correct? No. Wow. Parenting 101 starting next week. Discipline your children. No, I know you. You love your children. And if they choose to disobey you, you will discipline them. In, in secondary school and even upper primary, there is this thing that used to exist when I was a student called detention. If you were in trouble, you got detention. I only got it one time in my life, and that time was unjust. It wasn't fair. It's a topic for another day. But see, all around us, we believe in this concept of punishment for doing what's wrong. But then we say, well, how could God do such a thing? Well, tell me about your view of God. Is God holy? Is he without sin? Okay. Is God just? Okay. Is God righteous? Yes. Are we righteous? Just to make sure you're listening. No, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more later. Okay, so if God is just, holy, righteous. Oh, one more. Is he sovereign? Is his reign over all? Okay. Then, can God look at sin and not deal with it? Can a loving parent let their child continue to disobey and not deal with it? Does God love us so much that he gave us a brain that allows us to choose for ourselves whom we will serve? Yeah. Therefore, how could God not deal with sin? That is not a popular message, but it is no less true and real. Listen to what Jesus says this place of punishment after judgment, that after judgment I'll explain to you momentarily. When the Son of God, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. That judgment seat that we read about in Revelation, this is what Jesus is referring to. John was given a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God that is now our warrior king, sitting at the throne judging the people those who are in the Lamb's book of life and those who are not. And all the nations will be gathered before them and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, in that image, Jesus, the righteous and holy judge, came and he presented us with a choice. 
He said, if you would call on my name and believe in me, you will be saved. Paul reiterates that. It is consistent throughout the very word of God that there is a way to eternal life. And that way is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. But God loves so much that he didn't make us robots. He allowed us to choose for ourselves. Yes, he lives outside of time in such a way that he allows us to choose while still knowing how we will make our decisions. That's the amazing thing about God. But he gave us the choice to respond to his call. And not all will respond to his call. So should he just look at them and ignore that? No. He has to deal with it. Sin evil. It's got to be wrestled with and dealt with. And those that have continually resisted the call of the Lord on their life in all its forms, and we'll keep talking about this, they will be punished. You want to know why I don't like preaching this message? Not because there's no hope in it, but because I have friends that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I don't like to think about this truth that if Jesus were returned today and he was to sit on his judgment seat, that they would be condemned to hell. That is terrifying to me. I have family members that don't yet know Jesus Christ and have no desire to, even though their entire family works in a church. I have a a former brother-in-law that I long to bring him back to the fold, but I can't force it because God has loved us so much that he gave us a choice but it scares me to know that I know people that will be punished and will be sentenced to hell. It's reality. It's God's word. Jesus himself taught this. He will separate the wheat from the tares. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus didn't only say that there is punishment and that there is judgment and that hell is a place for that and it lasts. He said... He also taught about it being a place of fire and darkness. Others describe it as a place completely oblivious to the love of God, completely without love of any sort. And we really as humans, especially in in our first world context here in Asia, it's hard for us to live without a concept of love because even if you don't love another human being, you found something to give your heart's affection to. Imagine that all that is taken away and there is nothing but darkness and suffering that replaces it. That there is nothing to put your love and affections toward because it only produces pain. That's the picture of fire and darkness, the constant burning of being separated from life, love, and hope. What does Jesus say? Well, he's not soft. He says, as the weeds are pulled out and burned up in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, also part of a lament. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Again, Jesus himself. If you're here today, I want to make a bold statement and say, I hope you've come 
hungering for the person of Jesus Christ and a deeper life with him. And Jesus himself, my Messiah, my King, said that I'm separating those that do evil, that live in evil, that have said they don't need me, and I'm separating them. The righteous will be raised. Those apart from me will be punished, will be condemned. These are Jesus' words. These are hard words, but they're important for us Christians today to understand. And the final thing that that, that we point out in this context is hell is a place of annihilation or of never-ending judgment. And I've already explained a little of the the question of what does annihilation or never-ending there mean, but here's what we know. It's not good. It is not a place we would want our worst enemies to go. We can't, even in our most creative minds, I don't think we have a concept of suffering to such a degree. If you, if you turn in your Bibles back to Revelation and you picture a lake of fire, if I put my finger on something hot, I pull it away immediately, right? Imagine being consumed by a fire that is hotter than that. But not only that, but have you ever smelled sulfur? Anybody ever smelled sulfur? It is pungent. And that's not a happy thing. It smells like dead eggs mixed with smelly feet mixed with dead, rotting animal. And I think I'm pretty accurate in that. And so we're giving this extra sensory, this multiple sensory perception that hell, there is nothing good there. That you are suffering, you are burning and you are suffering and even you're sense of smell will be affected by the huge horror that is separation from Jesus Christ. Hell is a place we should wish no one to go. We shouldn't wish that on anyone. I can't describe fully what it will be like because my brain cannot comprehend a life without God. I need Him. I need the love that He gives and I need his hope to wash over me. Francis Chan says it like this. He says, hell creates both in us both deep sorrow for those that we know that will be condemned to hell or have been condemned to hell, but also unending joy. Why would hell ever produce produce joy? I'm going to start to make a change here, so. Okay, hell would produce joy for those that understand their lives are not marked and condemned to it. You with me? For those in Christ are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus looked at the man, I like to think on on his left. It doesn't tell us which, but I'm left-handed, so I look left. And he said, today you will be with me in glory. That is the message of hope that Jesus gave to a sinner that was standing right next to him. He says there is hope and there is joy and there is healing for you. We have a walking gospel message worshiping with his grandmother upstairs. The restoration of the body in Joshua Chu is a picture of the restoration of our entire soul and our entire being by God our Father through Jesus his Son that heals us for all eternity and invites us to call on the very name of Jesus and be saved. This should be exciting. And I'm just going to keep getting more excited because it should also create in us a sense of urgency. What do I mean? 
Well, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Does he have heartburn? No, he does not have heartburn. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The NIV says my Jewish brothers there. But the point is, Paul is writing, and you know what? I love you all, but I'm not sure I could truthfully write what Paul writes there. That I would rather give my soul to be cursed in hell for all eternity so that others might be saved. I'm very selfish, and I kind of want to be with God forever. But what Paul is saying is there is a tremendous urgency to preach the gospel and to welcome everyone into his family. And to do that, we must carry his message to the ends of the earth. And he would give his very soul to make that happen. There was such an urgency in him that he said, for to me live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I consider everything at loss, but for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is Paul. It was all Jesus. And he would give whatever he could so that people like you and I could know him forever. Would we do the same? Would we do whatever it took to make sure people knew the reality of hell, but the revelation of love? Or do we hope someone else will? Do we hope someone else will tell them about who Jesus is? Because I'm uncomfortable. I look out among you today and I say, wow, we've got wonderful visitors from Grace College who came in. What a week they came in on. You know, and welcome back, Dan and Gita Tups, and we're so glad they're with us, and Lucas too. And yeah, you came in on the hell week. But the reality is it doesn't change the reality. Hell is real. And we, if we are true Christ followers, are to be going into all the nations and preaching the gospel. But what's happened is we've gotten comfortable. The elders and I were talking on Thursday night. We've been watching a, a, a video about making disciples. And one of the, the references uh, that the, the speaker makes is on the idea that we, ca- we can't live in two worlds, that we've got to be consumed by the greatness of God in such a way that we're seeking out to bring people with us toward the person of Jesus Christ. That's my take on what the, the speaker says, uh, but, but the reality is there. Uh, John, in the beginning of his letter uh, or his prophecy of Revelation, he writes to certain churches and he writes specifically to the church in Laodicea. And he says, you're lukewarm. God's going to spit you out. And he's going to basically tell you, I never knew you. Those are Jesus words. For those that act like they're all high and mighty, they tick all the right boxes. I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray every day, but it's all done out of moralistic earning our way to salvation and they've missed the wonderful relationship with Jesus. Jesus will say, many will look at me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I don't know you. Who are you? I was on a Skype call late last night with a... uh, (laughs) kind of a long-lost friend. We hadn't heard from him in forever. And that was the joke. I looked at him and I said, who are you? I don't recognize you. Why don't I recognize him? Well, because there's been a long radio silence. There's been no communication. And so the joke was, I've forgotten what he looks like. 
Are we friends? I wasn't sure. And this was all done in a joke. But we often treat our relationship with Christ like he's a 7-Eleven. He's there when we need him and his doors are never closed. But that is not the relationship we are invited into. We are invited into an all-consuming fire of the Holy Spirit of God, empowering us to live transformative lives that the world sees. Holy cow, I want a life like that. Because that gives hope and meaning. Do you want to know why I know the world is in search of hope and meaning? Because on March 4th, today is the 6th, Two days ago, the front page of the New York Times, or shortly thereafter, I read the digital edition, so I don't know what was on the front page. But it was talking about a church in the western part of Manhattan that gets together with skeptics and invites them to ask all the questions they want on a specific topic about who God is. And you know what they can't stop? People from coming. The more they invite it, the more Tim Keller and his team invite people in. This is the New York Times. They are unashamedly pretty much anti-God. One of their own writers, a guy named David Brooks, wrote the book, The Road to Character, and they criticized him for being a little too holy. And he didn't even profess the name of Jesus in the book. They are not anything but liberal. But even they are saying, we recognize the culture we live in, people are searching for answers. People understand there's something different, but they don't know what. And we, Christ followers, are called to have such great sorrow at their loss that we walk with them through their doubt and uncertainty. That we study things like apologetics. That we study how to, pre- how to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So when a friend comes to you and say, would God really condemn someone to hell? You can answer with all love and sincerity. He loves us enough to let us deal with the choices we have made. Yes, he would condemn us because he gave us a choice and we've chosen not to respond to it. That's a hard truth, but it is true. But it's not the end of the story. It creates in us a sense of urgency. I hope right now, as we've progressed through this message, that you've got someone in your mind, a picture of a person that needs the love of Jesus, that needs to be freed from the bonds of Satan, and that you are going to chase them down for as long as it takes. There's been certain people in my own life that I've been, whenever I've gotten the chance, telling about Jesus for as long as I can remember, whatever little bit they'll give me. And as yet, no fruit has come. I'm not giving up. My first ever missions class that I can remember studying at Tacoa Falls College where I went to Bible college and studied missions. The professor, a world-famous anthropologist, gets up and says, we're going to take you through a journey of how to be a missionary. And he said, some of you will go to places where you will give your whole life to tell people about Jesus and not one person will respond. He says, go get them. Norman Allison lived his life telling people that truth, that we are compelled to give every chance we have to let people respond to the grace of Jesus Christ through the power of the cross. Because J.D. Greer tells us this, he says, hell magnifies for us the love of God by showing us how far God went and how much he went through to save us. 
Where does he get that? He gets that from verses like this one. Again, Romans says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. A parent might give their life for their child, but very rarely will people give up their own lives to save another, even though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, remember what sin equals, death, condemnation, and hell, okay? And what is Satan's job? To steal, kill, and destroy, to condemn us to hell. That is his objective. That's why when we make late of Satan, we have missed the very truth of who he is. He is trying to ruin your life. That's his goal. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in dying for us, he made a way, rising victoriously over sin and death, conquering as a great warrior, Satan once for all. And that he will return victoriously and raise all those that had called on the name of Jesus and invite them into eternity with him and restore what once was broken to how we were created to be. That is the message of the magnificence of a holy God that looked down at his creation while giving them free will and said, I am going to make a way for them to be saved, but I'm not going to force it upon them. It's hard to think about the fact that in our world, 1.5 billion people have never even heard of the person of Jesus Christ that doesn't make it less true. It's hard to realize that your next door neighbor might say, I know enough about God, I'm good, I'm a good guy, as he gives you a glass of wine. And he is a good guy. But he doesn't believe in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Well, I want to ask you a hard question because it's a hard question Jesus asked the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that... John had to write to the church in Sardis. They were asleep. They were letting everybody else deal with the injustice of the world. And it's a question we have to wrestle with. Are you sure? Paul writes, make your calling and election sure. What does he mean? Is your life hid in Christ? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now that has dual meaning for us who have already accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and he is Lord of our life because as we are reconciled to him, we should be chasing reconciliation of others, both to one another. Remember, we are members of each other. Uh, I was at a, a, a... challenging meeting recently and I was so nervous. I was tied up in knots the whole day having to give the message of we have no right to do anything but to pursue reconciliation one with another because that's what God has done for us. I don't care how mean or unjust someone was to you. Chase them down because that's what God did for you. Be reconciled to God and then go invite people to be reconciled to him and love them and walk with them because I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So my question is, as we finish up, do you know him? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus, you are Lord. You came to seek and save that which is lost, and I am lost. I'm living for myself, 
I'm glorifying the wrong things. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin once for all. You will be saved. That, I think, should deserve an amen, but I'm going to do it for you. Amen. Second, and this one hits to the heart of the church a little more. Are you secure in him? Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, where were you when I was hungry or thirsty? Where were you when I was poor and broken? Time and again, where is the church? The world is in desperate need. 1.5 billion people need to hear the very name of Jesus and never have. More billions need to know that there are people in the church out there that would walk with them through pain and suffering. And after Easter, we're going to look at pain and suffering and what God's word teaches about wrestling with that. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign and we can learn from our suffering and we are called to walk with people. You've been reading through Job if you're with us in our Bible reading plan and that's a great look at suffering. But for us in Christ, while our suffering will happen, our security in Christ is unshakable. Where does our righteousness come from? And this is what the church has to wrestle with. The minute we think because we're helping the poor, because we're sending tons of teenagers uh, just north of the border, because we're helping out Joyce and Henri in such a hard place as Congo, because we're supporting the Chiles and Lavina and others and the church planting efforts that, oh, we're doing a good job. We're awesome. Because we read Mike's report and Pastor Harris's report and the children's ministry report and all these reports and we see that God is at work. Yeah, we got this. If our righteousness is that, it's as filthy rags and will be spit out. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God let him be punished so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How are we saved from hell? By being righteous. Who is righteous? No one. There is no not one. So how do we get there? It seems like a divine circle that I can't win. Yep. And it's great. Because I can't fix myself. I can't even fix. The other day, and I'll finish with this. The other day I popped a tire. And Melissa was with me and I love my wife. And she's amazing. And she's even more so when you hear the end of this. And I'm getting out. And I've been taught when I was a kid how to change a tire. And so I made it to a gas station. And I'm out there. And there's the jack sitting in strapped in a certain way in my boot. That's a trunk for you Americans. Um, And I couldn't get the jack out of the car. And I'm sitting there a good 10 minutes trying to get this stupid thing out. And Melissa said, would you like me to try? <laughs> Here you go. And then I can't work the jack. Would you like me to try? <laughs> Here you go. I can't fix things. I'm hopeless. I can read a lot of books. I can get a lot of head knowledge. But yeah, don't ask me to put something together. I got a new app on my iPad called Bridge Builder. You do not want me building a bridge. It will die, collapse and you will die. I cannot fix anything on my own. Neither can you. But God gave us his son who had no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. We are not righteousness, but it is imputed upon us through Jesus Christ. Through the love of God, he gave us a way to deal with hell. And that was his son to be victorious over it and enter into a relationship with him for all eternity. And finally, John asks the question, are we in love with him? 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. If we have believed in him and called on his name and confessed our sins, he is faithful and just and he's forgiven us and he's purified us. We are washed by the blood of the lamb and we can cry that out. And if we are secure, we know nothing can separate us from the love of God for all eternity. And if we are secure in him, we know that we are in love with him and that we want nothing more than to abide, to live with him and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is hard that you don't hide from us the truth of hell and sin and punishment. And I know I have given a very brief overview of that this morning, but please don't let us walk away from here without being secure in you. Don't let us run away from the reality that hell is real and that our security is only found in you. Please open our eyes to those that need you and give us an urgency of heart that we would go wherever you would send us to tell them of your great love. Please forgive us for being passive in the past, but make today all things new. And now as we celebrate communion, Lord, I pray that we would remember the depth of what you have done because it is truly magnificent.